So I said to him, and then just as Tim was walking off, I was like, 70. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming and thank you for your patience. Um, this uh, is from the ground up. It's an evening where we're going to talk about Laurie McFarlane's book, The Economics of Housing and Land. Um, Laurie is the economics editor of Open Democracy. That's where I first came across his work. Uh, if you're not familiar with Open Democracy, it's well worth bookmarking it or adding it to your preferred way of filtering internet um, content. Um, and Laurie's work in particular looks at um, political economy in the, in the United Kingdom and uh, and his own work has, has sort of taken a special uh, interest in, in land and property. Um, before we start, a couple of bits of housekeeping. If anyone needs to use the loo, they're just under the stairs there. Uh, in the event of a fire, it's very simple. You just, we have to get out the way we came. So it's not very technical. Um, and good luck if that happens. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over to Laurie now. Laurie's going to talk for about 25 minutes, introducing you to some of the themes in his book um, and giving a, a crash course, really, in, in how we should start to think about land as an element in our shared life. After that, there's going to be an opportunity, perhaps for about 35 minutes, around about that long, for people to put questions to Laurie. And hopefully we'll have a, a conversation uh, which touches on some of the issues that affect us here. Um, the economics of housing and land are very um, pressing in this part of the world. And I do think this, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to start to think about them on a, on a sound footing. And then after that, there'll be a, a chance to have a glass of wine and a, a more informal conversation. So can you all join me in welcoming Laurie to Margate and to give his talk? Uh, well, thanks very much, Dan, for that uh, kind of introduction. Thanks for have, inviting me here to Margate. Uh, never been to this part of the world before, so it's a great, great pleasure. Um, so as Dan said, over the next kind of 25 minutes or so, I'm going to give a brief uh, kind of overview uh, uh, to some of the issues, key themes that we draw out in the book uh, that we published just over a year ago now, um, which I co-authored, should mention, with, with two colleagues. Um, and... Shortly after the book came out, the Financial Times kindly uh, wrote a review of it. Um, and, and in the review, I thought it was quite telling, they said that Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing is an appealing book, but it's not an appealing title. Uh, and they said that we'd sell many, many more copies if instead we called it This is Why You Can't Afford to Buy a House. <laughs> uh, by which point, of course, the printing press and so were done, so kind of stuck with this rather cumbersome, cumbersome name. But the real kind of motivation for doing this is a combination of a, of a research project that I was doing with two colleagues. Uh, and that was really because we felt like uh, land in particular and the role of land in our economy is at the root of many of the key issues that we face in Britain, but also in advanced economies more generally. Um, not only in, in the case of housing, but also bigger issues like inequality, uh, intergenerational issues, 
um, issues around um, gentrification and other things, and that this the, the role of land in particular was kind of overlooked uh, uh, as being a kind of at the root of many of these issues. Um, so that that's kind of the motivation for doing so. Um, I want to just begin by uh, speaking a bit about what I mean by land, because it sounds like an obvious question, um, but actually when people talk about land, it can mean different things depending on which angle you're coming at it from or which discipline you're, you're thinking about. Uh, what we mean by land uh, is, in an economic sense, is locational space. So we're not talking about earth and soil or, or anything like that, but a set of legal rights over space and the kind of rules uh, and arrangements that govern these rights around space. Uh, and that means it can be urban, it can be rural, it can be anything in between. Uh, and part of the, part of the, the, again, the motivations for us doing this is that when people talk about land or land economy, there's still this connotation that it's like a rural thing or that it's uh, something that was maybe important back in pre-industrial times, but it's maybe not that important in kind of you know, modern advanced economies with the internet and all the rest of it. But it's very much as much of an urban issue as it is a rural issue. Of course, that the, the, the way they manifest, the issues manifest themselves, of course, are different. Um, and then to understand land and its role in the economy, properly, um, really take a bit of a cross-disciplinary approach. So, uh, although we talk about economics, actually, it's much about kind of history, sort of law, uh, and really get your hands dirty and talk about things like power and class and things like that as well. Uh, and that makes it a bit of an awkward phenomenon for modern economics, uh, modern uh, economics profession. I don't know if we've got any economists here, but the economics profession has very much gone down the route of seeing itself as a kind of an objective scientific uh, uh, discipline that's kind of separate from politics uh, and I think that when you're, when you're talking about land and property uh, you cannot separate that from issues of politics and power and all the other things um, so that's what we mean For, first place to begin really uh, when we're talking about land um, institutional private property um, um, modern societies I think were kind of accustomed to uh, the idea of private property as something that's just there and, and always has been. Of course, in reality, it's quite new. Most of history, land couldn't be uh, owned or traded or, or sold uh, in, in the way that it can be today. Um, and the, the process of going from a situation where we had land which was uh, governed according to things like custom and, and social ties of obligation things, common land, into the private property um, was, was a very disruptive process that started here in England, of course, and spread elsewhere. Um, but the key kind of insight that we, we draw a parallel from that process to where we are today uh, is that it's a very much a double-edged sword. Uh, so on the one hand, private property uh, enabled, kick-started basically capitalism uh, and the kind of explosion in wealth and technological process that came from that. Gave great power to landowners, to the people who could then exclude people from certain parts of uh, space, uh, and have that be legally enforceable by the state. Of course, at the same time, it was huge dispossession uh, and, and often violent and forced dispossession. People were purged from the lands. Those that were allowed to stay were then forced to pay uh, what they could previously access for free in the form of rents to landowners. So you had this dividing line put through society between those who benefited from it and those who didn't. And this is what we kind of call a paradox of property. And this manifests itself uh, today it's very much alive and well today in modern economies, but it manifests itself slightly differently. And the primary way through which it does that uh, is through uh, the housing market today here in Britain at least. 
So this chart here shows the value of the housing stock in the UK at three points in time, 1995, 2005, and 2015. Uh, and for those of you who can't see the chart, in 1995 it was worth about one and a half trillion pounds, and in 2015 it was worth nearly six trillion pounds. So it's, uh, it's increased by about five trillion pounds in that space. And the Office of National Statistics who gather these uh, Statistics are very clear that this isn't because we've built more houses, it's basically all because of we've had house price inflation, of course, house prices have risen. Um, I'm sure as, as everyone will be familiar, familiar here. Now the price of a property has two components. Uh, it has the value of the building that sits uh, there, but it also incorporates the value of the land that sits underneath. Now, Discerning the, the breakdown between these two elements has actually been quite difficult in Britain because uh, we've just not for a long time not collected any information or data on land. But interestingly, one of the developments since we released the book last year, the Office for National Statistics actually did have a crack at breaking out land from the rest of the property. And this chart here shows the total wealth in the UK, again from 1995 to 2016. And what you can see straight away is that the bulk of what we are calling wealth, the increase in wealth in this country over the past 20 years, has actually been the value of land increasing. Dwellings hasn't increased uh, that much. Um, and this was something that, that we've kind of long suspected, various studies have been done, but this really confirmed the fact that actually uh, land has been, the rising land prices has been the key driving force in increasing wealth uh, over the past uh, 20 decades. It's also been the driving force behind Rising, uh, rising house prices. <coughs> um, so what I'll do, I'll shift on. So the question that we want to, question that we can pose, is to to think about why is it then that land has increased so much in value? Why is it that even today in a economy like the UK, land is actually the most valuable asset? So it's more valuable than any other asset there is in the in the public accounts. Uh, something that's been there for ages. Why is that the case? And there are a number of key reasons, kind of general reasons, why uh, you can expect land to be rising in value. One is that it's fixed in supply. Uh, there's inherent uh, um, uh, kind of characteristics of land, which mean that by and large, you would expect it to increase in value over time. As Mark Twain famously once said, it's attributed to him, but it's a question whether it was actually him, said, buy land, they're not making it anymore. <laughs> so as you have population growth, economic growth, Increasing demand interacts with some of this fixed in supply, you're expected to, to increase over time. There's also evidence that as societies get wealthier, uh, people want more space, and that's a kind of a positional good which people are willing to stretch their incomes to get. It doesn't have diminishing return like other things where people get richer, they don't necessarily consume more certain things, but they do want to stretch their income uh, uh, for, for space. Um, and that's a kind of a general, they're both kind of general things that, that can happen anywhere. Um, of course, in the economy and in places, specific bits of land are more valuable than others. So we all know, for example, that you know, to buy a plot of land, say, 10 miles away from here, would be much, much cheaper than it will be in, in the middle of, of London. Um, and that's because <coughs> the locational value of land is determined by the activity around it. And this is kind of encapsulated quite well by this quote uh, by uh, Winston Churchill, uh, who famously said um, in a speech in Parliament, roads are made, streets are made, 
Services are improved. Electric light turns night into day. Water is brought from reservoirs 100 miles off in the mountains. And all the while the landlord sits still. So what I was really getting at there is a social, very social element to the value of land, which isn't necessarily the case with other things. So the value of someone's plot of land isn't determined by what the owner of that land is doing, it's determined on what's happening around it, what other people are doing in the community. Is there a new train station being built? Again, it will increase the, the value of the land. Is there a new school? Is there a new art centre or whatever? Um, and yet it's the landowner who reaps the benefit of this uh, community activity uh, by, by being able to charge higher rents or being able to sell the land for, uh, for, uh, for more value. Now, these are all kind of general, uh, general things that can apply anywhere, but it's only inherently part of the story because the main de determinant, really, of, of the land economy uh, is the institutions, the politics, the laws, the regulations that really govern the rules of the game, if you like, that govern the land economy. And they are, by nature, vary immensely by country. They vary immensely by time as well. They change and come and go. And these rules of the game, if you like, tend to be determined by... Uh, politics and power and class relations and things like that. And so it's very difficult to make sweeping generalisations on the land economy across different countries. And we really focus in on the situation in Britain and how that's evolved over time. Um, so it's mainly applicable here, but also similar countries, particularly kind of Anglo-Saxon countries, often experience similar, uh, similar things, partly because of the similar legal structures and things like that. So I'm just going to kind of gallop through very quickly just to give a sense of what's kind of happened over the course, particularly over the past half century, that has really shifted the dynamics of the land economy in Britain and then how that's then manifested itself in some of the key social issues that we see around us in, in our kind of day-to-day -day lives. So if we just quickly uh, rewind back to the start of the 20th century, um, most people rented privately. Uh, often in pretty horrible conditions, slum-like conditions. Uh, and you had a separation between people who kind of owned lots of land outright, the property class, and, and those who, who didn't. The, the world wars, both world wars, uh, kind of kick-started an era, really, in this country where the state began to uh, intervene in the housing market, began to play an active role in providing uh, low-cost, affordable housing uh, for people, particularly for kind of soldiers returning from, from war and things like that. Um, and after World War II, we had the, the establishment of the formal planning system, which kind of nationalised the right to, to, to develop land. And we also had strong compulsory purchase powers, which meant that the state could buy land at its existing use value, often very low prices, uh, and then develop it, uh, lay down infrastructure. And this, this was a kind of mechanism that was used to develop the new towns, for example, uh, in, in the post-war period. Um, you had tight financial regulation as well, where... Um, Basically, banks actually weren't really in the mortgage lending game at all. It was mainly building societies, small local institutions who were, who were lending against property. And you had taxes on property as well in various guises. And this kind of post-war settlement really did a reasonable job of kind of um, meeting housing need uh, and keeping prices under control. But beginning of the 1960s, particularly the 1970s, this all really began to change. There was a number of uh, deliberate policy changes in a whole number of areas which really started to, to, to pick away at this. Um, so taxes on property were removed, there was a Schedule A income tax that was a tax on property removed in, in the 1960s, 
When capital gains tax was introduced as a tax, uh, primary residences were made exempt, which put uh, property housing at a, an advantage versus other assets. Subsidies for property were introduced, so you had MIRAS, Mortgage Interest Relief at Source, which provided uh, a, a, a subsidy against you could um, deduct your mortgage interest payments off, off your income tax. Um, and you had the changes to the compensation rules around uh, the purchase of land by the state. So whereas previously the government could buy land at low cost, there was an important change in the 1961 Land Compensation Act, which meant that if the government was to buy land, it had to compensate the landowner as if development and planning permission had already been granted. So that windfall gain that comes from getting planning permission and from development happening around it, which could previously ca be captured by the public sector, was that shift meant that that could be that that uplift was basically captured by by landowners? Um, obviously, with the arrival of Margaret Thatcher, we had uh, a, a distinct shift in policy. Um, the state basically retreated significantly from the supply side of housing, dramatically leaving the uh, the this is new houses by tenure. If you can't see the top, and you can see the blue is, is basically public local authority house building. Uh, basically falls off a cliff in the 1980s uh, dramatically and you have a shift in the way that the government basically s supports housing from the supply side, the kind of bricks and mortar side of things as it was in the past to the demand side uh, to sort of subsidising individuals if you like and this is the birth of housing benefit and other things so today the government spends about £25 billion a year uh, on housing benefit which basically goes into a lot of the time into landlords pockets to subsidise individuals who can't afford to pay, uh, to pay their rent. We obviously had right to buy as well which shifted a lot of the public housing stock into the private sector uh, and, in, and it wasn't, despite the promises that we were replaced, by and large uh, wasn't replaced. And this really left, the, kind of, the, the idea here was that this, the supplies that would be left to the market so the private sector would, would deal with all the development side of things and actually the role of the, the state was really just to kind of pick up on the demand side to kind of help, help people who can, can afford their, their rent. One of the most significant changes um, that happened beginning in the 1970s and 1980s was changes in the financial system. Um, so as I mentioned previously, uh, obviously when people buy a property, they don't tend to do it with their income. It tends to be done with borrowed money, often in the form of a mortgage and therefore what really determines the demand for property isn't just how many, how much incomes or savings people have, but it's how much banks are able and willing to lend against that property. Um, and beginning of the 1970s was a pretty significant process of deregulation in the financial sector in the UK and elsewhere, and banks were incentivised to come into the mortgage lending market, and the restrictions that were previously in place on lending against property were dramatically, uh, dramatically curtailed and rolled back. Uh, and what we saw was basically a flood of new credit, mortgage credit, enter, uh, enter the housing market. Um, and when you have a fairly el elastic supply of credit interacting with a pretty fixed supply of housing and land, you had the emergence of this kind of feedback cycle, what we call the land credit feedback cycle. Um, this, here, this here, actually, I'll just quickly touch on this. This shows UK bank lending by sector over time. So this is all the big high street banks in the UK, what are they actually lending to? Um, and the kind of textbook idea that people have in their head, and even policymakers still, is this idea that banks might do a bit of mortgage lending, but they mainly lend, you know, to productive business and, and you know, help, uh, you know, help business investment. Whereas actually, over time, 
the blue, the pink and the green lines there, the dramatic increase are both property lending, so mortgage lending and commercial property. And the dark blue at the very bottom, you can see, is, is what you might call real economy lending. So it's a fraction, it's really not changed, it's now well less than 10% of what banks actually lend, lend to. By and large, they're lending to property, to real estate, to finance the purchase of already existing assets. And as I say, when you, when you have lots of new credit there flowing into something that's quite fixed in supply, you get these feedback, uh, feedback loops, um, which I'll show here. Um, and this is all this is really showing is exactly as I just said, this financialization of land and housing, if you like, where more mortgage credits flowing in, um, you see house prices go up. You, there's an expectation, therefore, create that starts to emerge that house prices will continue to go up. Uh, that increases demand for mortgages and getting on the housing ladder, etc. That then enables banks increases their profits. That enables them to provide more credit, and it kind of goes round and round and round, um, exacerbated by a number of other things, which I won't go into. Financial innovations like securitisation and other things, which enable banks to basically make mortgages, package them up, load them off the balance sheet, and keep keep the system going, keep more mortgage credit flowing in, essentially. Um, and this really here is. By and large, out of all the factors that uh, have contributed to the explosion in house prices over the last kind of three, four decades, all the things I've talked about have all contributed, but our assessment and various others as well is that this kind of process has really been the main, the main driver of the dramatic increase in, in house prices, what we call the financialization of, of, of land and housing, um, supported, of course, by government policy. Now, all of these changes that I've just talked about, and I say I've just galloped through them very, very quickly, um, uh, all of these, they weren't kind of accidental, they weren't by the side, they were all done with a specific purpose, really, by government, and that was to promote homeownership, to promote this idea, the kind of political ideology of property-owning democracy, which really kind of began in the 1950s in the Conservative Party, but really kind of came to the fore under Margaret Thatcher, the idea being that the aim of housing policy should be to give people a stake in private property and do everything you can to get more people to own their home. And that this is really the aim and kind of everyone can get it if they, if they really work hard enough. Um, and this was actually quite successful uh, for, mo for, for a long time. Uh, all, of this, all of this had a dramatic effect on rates of homeownership. You can see here owner occupancy is the yellow line. Uh, and you can see it increased dramatically from about 30% in, in 1950, right up to 70% in the early 2000s. So all of these, all of these changes that came in dramatically increased rates of homeownership. But then in the early 2000s, a tipping point was reached. You can see that actually homeownership has now been falling for about 15 years, quite steeply. Um, and ultimately that tipping point was reached because the kind of byproduct of all of these policies introduced to increase homeownership was the explosion in house prices, particularly relative to incomes. House prices are racing away from incomes in many parts of the country. And although these subsidies or easier mortgage credit lending kind of papered over for a while and kept it going, eventually that tipping point was just reached where uh, house prices just became so out of touch with what people could afford. Uh, and obviously, as, as we know, um, homeownership's been falling and it's very difficult, particularly for young people, to get on the, on the housing ladder now. Um, and what, we've, what you see as well here is the red line is private rented. And you can see that the private rented market has basically been rising exponentially since the early 2000s um, and is on an on a upward trajectory march. 
These kind of trends are much, much more advanced in London. Um, and I just want to show this chart quickly because London is basically where all these things I've been talking about have been happening in the UK, but obviously London's kind of where it's been happening on steroids almost, where a lot of the things are much more advanced. Um, and you can see here, this is London. For, all, for those who can't see it, we had a tipping point reach last year where there's now more people renting privately than there is owning in London, uh, which was a kind of a, a mild, a kind of watermark, uh, watermark moment. Um, obviously, the, these these tenure trends then have quite an interesting kind of political economy dynamic, because if you're in a situation today where, despite homeownership being falling, it's still the majority of people still own their homes. Uh, politicians have therefore be, had an incentive to kind of cater to that part of the demographic. Um, not only because of the majority, but also because homeowners tend to be more likely to turn out to vote. And there's this tension that's arisen between, on the one hand, uh, resolving these issues of affordability, resolving these issues of um, uh, housing affordability on the one hand, and maintaining and preserving the asset wealth of homeowners on the other. And despite the talk, when it's come to action, and recent decades, politicians have increasingly kind of sided with the former uh, rather than dealing, uh, sorry, the latter rather than dealing with the former. I just want to touch, I just want to end by um, going back to this paradox of property uh, discussion that I talked about earlier. Um, the, the idea that there's this double-edged sword element to all of this and how this manifests itself in the modern economy. Because Rising land values, as we've seen, land has increased exponentially. The value of land has it's, it's generated a lot of wealth for people. If you own property, that's meant that you've increased your net wealth. It means you've increased your economic security. It means you've been able to borrow more, uh, in many cases, to then enter the buy-to-let market or buy a second property. For everyone else, that means higher rents. And the rental market means having to save more for deposit. Uh, both of which mean you've got less disposable income left over to spend uh, on other things. And I think what we've kind of missed uh, in the, for a long time in this country, where rising house prices are seen as kind of economic strength, we've kind of missed the, missed the fundamental point that the whole housing ladder game is effectively a zero-sum game, in the sense that it might make some individuals wealthier if house prices going up, but society as a whole isn't any better off. And you think about it, it shouldn't be that surprising because when price of land goes up, nothing new is being produced in the economy. We've not done anything differently. It just means that one, the, the asset value has gone up, which is great for the owner, but then somebody else somewhere down the line, either today or tomorrow, current generations or future generations don't own property, uh, will then have to bear that cost uh, at, at some point in time. And so the trillions of pounds that have been accumulated in wealth through the housing market in recent decades have really come at the expense of current and future generations who don't own property. I think we've just not that's not clicked in, in British society yet because we still see the housing market as the kind of perennial source of wealth. It's the way to kind of get on and accumulate wealth. Uh, we're kind of overlooking that fact. And this kind of tension here, I think, is also at the heart of uh, the issues around displacement and gentrification uh, and, and these kind of issues that you see in, in communities. Um, because on the one hand, you have, uh, for, for some people, but particularly for people that own property in the area, uh, when you have greater development happening, you have new things opening up, um, that's kind of great for certain people um, and the value of the properties then go up in that area. We see this all around the country, it's been dramat more dramatic in London of course. But then for other people in the area who don't own property etc, they're then faced with higher rents, 
uh, and all the rest of it being priced down, being displaced. And, and again, it's that kind of paradox of property uh, that I talked about earlier that's kind of driving a wedge through places. Um, and that basically, uh, some people are able to gain at the expense of others, and that's really driving a wedge uh, right the way through uh, society. Um, I just want to quickly, briefly talk about, I won't, I won't go into this in too much, much detail, um, but one of the ideas and one of the things we focus quite a lot on the book is, is the role of the economics profession and economic theory in all of this, because um, the early political economists were kind of well aware of this stuff. They saw land as being quite an important, important part to think about in political economy. And they actually saw uh, the problem of rising land values, the economic rent from land, as not being, as being a real problem. And that wasn't because there were, uh, in many cases, the kind of classical political economists, people like Adam Smith, um, they, they, thought, they thought this kind of undermined the uh, private property system, undermined capitalism, which they supported. So they, they wanted to, they, they thought having these massive increases in land values could be destabilizing and they wanted to avoid that and supported things like taxing away that land, that land value. Uh, we had uh, the evolution of the economics profession, um, uh, which again, we go into much more detail in the book, has kind of evolved, the land kind of fell out of the equation and the idea that there's windfall gains to be made kind of disappeared. Uh, and the prevalent uh, theory that basically people are rewarded in line with the contribution to society kind of took hold, uh, took hold um, and, and, and really kind of dominated. Um, and I want to just put up this last quote from my favorite, uh, <coughs> one of my favorite quotes on this, which is John Stuart Mill. He said that if some of us grow rich in our sleep, where do we think this wealth is coming from? It doesn't materialize out of thin air. It doesn't come without costing someone, another human being. It comes from the fruits of others' labors which they don't receive. And that's kind of highlighting this, uh, highlighting this point, which I think has been lost, which is uh, in actual fact, the way that we've constructed our land economy and our, 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 our property system uh, has created a system where actually people are gaining massively at, at the expense uh, of others and these huge windfall gains. Most wealth has been accumulated not by being entrepreneurial, working hard, contributing to production like it is in economic theory. It's actually been basically from positions of uh, exploiting property ownership and getting these massive windfall gains. And again, that's something that's been uh, pretty lost from, from economic theory, uh, which the, the kind of textbook view of the world uh, just, just doesn't hold at all. And I, I just lastly, I thought I'd put this I don't know if anyone what reads the Daily Mash, uh, the kind of satirical uh, uh, website. Um, it kind of captures it quite well. It says that man whose house has gone up in value thinks he's a brilliant businessman. Uh, man who's benefited from constantly rising property prices somehow believes it's due to his excellent uh, business skills. And obviously, this is a kind of a, a kind of a, a, a throwaway kind of jokey remark. The reason I think it's important is just because of the scale of. Uh, of, of this, so I showed at the beginning, basically about 80% of all wealth that's been accumulated in this country over the past 20, 25 years has basically come from this, which is at complete odds with the kind of narrative that, that people have about how you accumulate wealth um, in, the, in the country. So really keen to open up to a discussion and, and get some input. Before I do that, I just wanted to throw out some sort of statements really about what we, where we go from here, because it's, it's kind of all good and well just talking about what problems are and stuff like that. Um, and we devote the last bit of the book to discussing specific solutions and policy solutions and stuff like that. 
and all of them are really geared towards about six kind of key goals or where we're trying to get to. So rather than get into the nitty gritty on the policy stuff, which we've maybe done the discussion, I thought I'd just throw out these uh, key kind of goals, which we think anyway are the direction of travel we should be moving towards. Um, so the first one, uh, this is more of an economics type thing, but reaffirming the role of land and, and, and economic rent in the teaching of economics. Objective two, capture the uplift in the value of land for public benefit. So rather than having rising land values driving this wedge through society where some people are here to capture that uh, wealth at the expense of others, various ways of looking at how you can capture that value and share that uh, among the community. Make housing supply less dependent on the volatile private market and land and homes. Um, so basically not having a situation where you're leaving basic human need housing in the hands of a dysfunctional market. Level the playing field between tenures so that people aren't incentivized to overinvest in homeownership. As discussed, we've kind of skewed our policy framework massively in favor of homeownership to the extent to which people, if you really want to find security and live somewhere, you're kind of forced to look at the homeownership because you can't get that security with other things. You can level the playing field with different <coughs> models. Objective five, so break the positive feedback cycle between the financial system, land values, and the wider economy. So that uh, that cycle that I showed earlier that's really ratcheting up house prices kind of break that link uh, so that we don't have this ever-increasing uh, house prices. Uh, and objective six, um, which is perhaps sometimes slightly controversial one, which is re reduce reliance on housing as a means for accumulating wealth and paying for retirement or funding care and old age, which I think uh, has been topical recently. But in this country, certainly, there is a sense that Having, having housing wealth is important to take care of yourself and older age and things like that. And as long as we have that kind of in the back of our minds, um, then that's going to drive certain behaviours. And therefore, I think there's a lot better ways as a society to think of how we care for people in old age that doesn't rely on the kind of volatile housing market. Again, various ways to, to do that. So I've kind of talked enough. Uh, so that was kind of a juggernaut through a lot of different areas which you're conscious of. Um, but very, very keen to hear, uh, yeah, to hear people's thoughts and, and have that discussion. Um, so, Laurie, thank you so much for, as you say, driving a juggernaut through the, the topic there um, at quite, quite a rate of knots. Um, I really hope that people will, will have lots of um, questions for you. I'm going to take the privilege and prerogative of the chair and ask you a question to start with. I know that there's, there are different, slightly different uh, land regimes in Scotland and in England and uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, I wanted to ask, from the point of view of an English local authority, what kinds of institutional mechanisms or what, kind of, what kinds of public um, interventions are possible now in theory, um, that could be used to ameliorate some of the effects of um, this uh, predatory land credit cycle? Are there ways of sheltering the social from the effects of the market, the predatory market, that we have right now that we could employ more effectively? Yeah, so I think, um, I think there's two, two things there. I mean, the first thing that, uh, I mean, we did quite a lot of work actually. I used before I worked at the New Economics Foundation, we were doing quite a lot of stuff on public land, because actually, although in recent years, 
there has been a massive fire sale of public assets, particularly public land, local authorities under pressure to, re to realise capital receipts. In many cases, actually, they still own uh, quite a lot of, of, of land and, and assets. Uh, and I think there's various, and often, and partly because of wider government pressures, we've been forced to kind of sell that off to the highest bidder, uh, to private developers or whatever, that's not really got any social value uh, inherent in that. But looking at ways to actually utilise the assets that are in an area, whether that's owned by the local authority, whether that's owned by other institutions, uh, and look at smart ways of using these assets to kind of uh, provide uh, decent, uh, affordable housing. And there's various different models, which I think are quite interesting. Uh, things like community land trusts, which separate out the land from the buildings that sit on top and put the land into an asset lock. And therefore, when people come in and rent or buy, they just, they're just doing that on the building rather than that huge cost of the land. Various different models, which I think are good. But utilising the assets that are in the area uh, for that wider, longer-term strategic need rather than sort of buying them off to the, to the local, to the highest bidder. The other thing I just wanted to touch on, which you mentioned in, in Scotland, so um, there's been interesting, really interesting things happening in recent uh particularly the last decade, the whole kind of land reform movement that started after devolution, the Scottish Parliament came in. And one of the most successful elements of that was something called community right to buy, which was introduced. And that meant that communities, in the first case in the Highlands and Islands, whose, who, who their land is owned by an like absentee landlord, you know, some, someone lives elsewhere, the community could get the, put the first right to buy out that land and they got money from the government to do that. There was a fund set up called the Scottish Land Fund and that was then, uh, they could then tap into that in order to buy out. And that's been really successful, uh, and a lot of these communities are now thriving in things like renewable energy and growing population. But just last year now, for the first time, that's then been spread to rural, uh, sorry, to urban. So now they can do urban community right to buy. And it's just sort of, we'll yet to see what effect it'll have, but I think if it's done right, it could have a transformational role if you have that, that enabling role of the central government, but it's actually community-led, and communities can say if there's a bit of derelict, derelict land or there's you know a bit of space that's not been reached its full potential, can put a bid together and say, do you know what, we want to buy that out, get a bit of funding support for government to do that in order to then sort of take back control really of the kind of local community and local spaces and start to kind of put, put that back. But that requires a bit of set, a bit of a, a willing central government to kind of put that, put that through that change. Sure. But I do think that's something that we could be pushing a bit more in other parts of the UK. Well, fortunately in Margate, there are no, there's no underused or derelict land, so um, it's not really a relevant issue for, or maybe it is, I don't know. Um, I'm really keen to hear from uh, anyone in the, in, in the audience who's got a burning question to ask. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking to Laurie, because I can talk about this stuff all night. So, if you'd like to ask a question. Sam. Hi, thank you. Uh, um, everything you've said, and all the slides you've shown, and all the quotes, will make complete sense to me and it seems like the story you laid out is that there's a sort of increasing cost whereas the actual value doesn't change um, and it just seems to be going forever up and it can't get forever up it seems to be trailing off in the graph you showed because people can't afford to buy anymore so the only people who can afford to buy are people who already own something and you borrow against it so there's how the land is, is being concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, and it seems to be the government subsidising all this through housing. And I'm just not really sure why you want to do that when everything you've said seems so obvious and sensible and more equitable and cheaper. 
Um, and it happens in many other countries like Germany, where it's all much more regulated and controlled, and the quality is much better, and everyone has more space, and everyone's happier and richer. By not commodifying land, I just can't understand why anyone would want to do that, other than really basic greed of the few landowners who were sitting in the Lords and blah, 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 blah. And is, is it that basic and boring? Uh, good question. So my, I mean, the way I see it, again, is a kind of looking at the real political economy dynamics, because what we're talking about here is not the case where there are necessarily, the problem is kind of a few massive landowners. The, the reality is that the main, the beneficiaries of this have actually been regular homeowners. That was Margaret Thatcher's yeah. philosophy. That was the idea of the Tory party. You'd be, you'd be in hock forever to banks. And to a certain extent, the rise in property prices has been pretty accidental. But then you're looking, I mean, there's a whole area I don't understand, really, um, is the uh, banks in terms of how they're going to keep this situation going because of the, you know, they want to avoid a crash or whatever. I mean, presumably in this, it's not just to do with housing policy. But it's to do with uh, regulating banks in favour of supporting communities and mm. having social housing again, because we absolutely need it. The point of home ownership is ridiculous. Mm. It all seems yeah, it's so clear, so why isn't it happening? Well, because I think, I mean, if you look at the kind of the, the various interests that are, that are at stake here, so partly it's because, as I said, 63% of the population are homeowners, and not only that, their, most of their wealth is tied up in the property market and therefore anything policy-wise that will increase the affordability of housing, i.e. reduce house prices, erodes wealth of the middle, of middle classes in, in Britain. Uh, and I think that that is something that is, is pretty difficult for politicians to do. Anything that will impact house prices to come down. Uh, in many cases, again, it's not people who are super, super rich, it's people who might have mortgaged up to the hill find themselves in negative equity, it's a disaster. A political nightmare, but also it's a disaster for their own lives. But also, uh, so th there's the homeowners, which are a large chunk of the population. Uh, you mentioned the banks. The other problem is that the bank, nowadays, uh, our banking system is basically leveraged against land values. So most, most banks' balance sheet is lent against land values. So if land values, i.e. housing or land becomes cheaper, land values fall. You're in a position where the bank balance sheets start to look pretty precarious, uh, and again, politicians aren't going to do anything that risks the solvency of the banking system. And so there's these all these interests of the majority of the electorate, the banks, um, even the developers as well, who who have got a stake in this, who you know, from a politicians' perspective, keeping the shoe on the road and not having that that reduction is pretty priority. And that's why I think after the financial crisis, they really did throw the kitchen sink to make to avoid. Although we did have a bit of a a downswing, not as much as we've had in the past, and not as much as elsewhere, because they really made damn well sure to avoid as much as possible this uh, this this collapse. So that it's that tension between addressing the affordability issue, helping people who aren't on the property ladder, but at the same time, that then impacts impacts all these other people and causes kind of economic chaos. So it's you know how do you balance this? Gently building social housing helped gently regulate it, so you wouldn't need to. Yeah, and the, I mean, the interesting thing, I don't know if anyone saw this on the social housing, and it comes back to the ideological point, the politics of it you mentioned, with the, the, the ideology of property and democracy. Nick Clegg, interestingly, said that when he was in government, um, George Osborne's response was, they were talking about building more social housing, George Osborne's response was, 
no, we're not doing that because it creates Labour voters. And Margaret Thatcher's idea with the property owned democracy was literally, explicitly, to erode socialist sentiment, to erode that collective nature of housing, give people a stake in private property, and that will make them vote conservative. That was basically what it was. And, and to this day, that classic George Osmond example of, well, we don't want to do that because that will make Labour voters. Um, so, so that's I think that's partly some of the resistance on from some on the on the social housing side of things. But to be honest, you need to build. I mean, uh, one of the issues that we can maybe touch on that we've talked about, Dan, is you hear a lot of the news, which is all oh, the solutions to build more houses, <coughs> and that's just the answer to everything: build more houses. And kind of reality is, you can build more houses, but it doesn't necessarily solve some of the, a lot of these issues. Do you want to come back on that, particularly the issue of development without infrastructure? Because this, this touches on what I think is partly going on is that this is about delivering to volume house builders and landowners rather than making places. Mm. But I don't want to preempt. Yes. And, but can we take the question from you? Because I know you, you wanted to ask a question earlier as well. Yes. Um, I mean, this feeds into this question because I think it responds to some of the things that have been said. And I was, I was interested in your description of the financialization process because it, it seemed to me that you were missing something, or you did, I, I don't know if you've theorized it, but um, so about, probably about a decade ago, somebody from the New um, Economics Foundation, it might have been Joss, your co-author, um, um, said at an event that I went to that um, 
of all of the things that are um, made, you know, um, all the services, everything that, all the transactions that go on in, at any given moment on the face of the planet, um, that are, you know, all of the work that people do, all of that, all of the, all of, uh, you know, okay, I'm not saying it right, let me just say, that the work that people do only comprises 3% of all of the global transactions in terms of net value. And so what that means is that there's 97% of money just sort of swishing around the global economy, which is actually has nothing to do with what we actually make, which makes life possible. What it has to do is what, what people think everything is worth. And so, and that is, and the primary, one of the primary places that that happens, of course, is, is the city of London. And so, it seems to me that, you know, yes, there's this sort of financialization process within the, within the, the mortgage system, but the financialization process within the city of London, which is created, you know, okay, so take, just, if you just look at London as a system, you can, you can see that you have like this bit of London where people aren't actually producing anything of any value. They're not, you know, they're not helping other Londoners to live. They're just making an incredible amount of money that has no actual sort of essence. And then you have all these people doing stuff like, you know, I used to do stuff in London and, and now like loads of people like me who were doing, actually making London function can't afford to live there because the people from the city who aren't doing anything have 97% more money than we do for doing nothing. Except okay. for like knowing maths okay. and getting that position. So like, I don't understand why that so is like it. <laughs> Okay, so there's, no, so there's two questions. So there's, there's the issue of development-led infrastructure, or the absence of infrastructure and development-led land regime, and how land speculation relates to a broader system of speculation and a, an increasingly financialized global economy, obviously, where London has a sort of pole position. So what do you think? Um, so yeah, just on the first point, I guess, on the, the city, I mean, yeah, I mean, so the, the whole area, I mean, the broader, I guess, part of a broader story, of particularly over the past kind of 30, 40 years of the kind of rise of financialized capitalism, uh, as opposed to as a distinct form of political economy as to industrial capitalism, um, I think it's absolutely right. And one key element of that, I, we think anyway, is financialization of land and property. But on top of that, what you see is that the, the, la the land and property is kind of the, the the top or the bottom of an inverse pyramid, if you like. So on top of that, there's a whole, there's a whole, you know, layers and layers and layers and layers of instruments and financial uh, instruments and assets that are then traded, uh, that are then based somehow on these properties. So the classic was the, the financial crisis 2007-8 when uh, you had all these uh, instruments, uh, mortgage-backed securities and collateralized debt obligations, which were basically mortgage, Somebody had made a given a mortgage to people who probably couldn't pay it back, but then the pe person who made the mortgage didn't care because they then sold it on. All these mortgages were then diced up a million times and packaged together in ways that people didn't really understand, and then sold and traded around the world. And then people would then make a bet, basically, on these instruments and then insure against these instruments. So there's all these kind of paper transactions and assets worth, like you say, hundreds and hundreds of times more in, in value than the actual underlying asset. Uh, and, and sort of playing these, pushing paper around, basically completely and utterly detached from what's happening at, at the root of it. 
Um, but that's just but the property and land bit is really just part of that. But I think it's quite a big part uh, of it because that's ultimately what a lot of the initial transaction is is a, is based on land property. And again, it's completely detached from any kind of production uh, in, in the economy. But my question was, like, have you actually theorised that whole chunk of money in, in as part of your book in your theory of of, of um, the political economy of land in Britain? Because to me, on a really it's very evident that that is what is inflating prices along with everything else. I mean, but especially in London, it's so much more severe than everywhere else. And you have all of those people with that cash. And so, you know, I see it on a very pragmatic level. I, I see it. So I'd like to see, see it theorized somewhere. And I'm wondering if it's theorized in your book like that or... Uh, yeah, well, it, it features, so that credit, <laughs> land credit cycle that I kind of quickly put through, one of the things that's feeding off and into that is the whole, um, what, what you might call uh, securitization and derivative market, which is basically what you're kind of talking about, is, all, is this whole swathe of world where assets are then traded and traded and traded. Um, but not, but I mean, that's not necessarily affecting, the main thing affecting property prices is the, the initial lending going into the property market. And then the mortgages can then be offloaded off the balance sheet, and then they can do more mortgage lending. I mean, if you, I mean, you only have to look at the map, a map of the city of London, and you see all the names of like Leathermonger Street, and, like places where people made things, right? The the city of London was a functioning town, and is now just banks, right? The financial sector, you're right, has completely steam cleaned the square mile of productive activity. It is a it is a ultra pro for for. for purely paper transactions. The, the fastest um, change in land ownership in England since the dissolution of monasteries happened when Thatcher started to deregulate the banks in the early 80s. And people in the city took windfall gains and bought a country estates in the early <coughs> 80s. This is the beginning of a restoration of a, a kind of city gentry model of society. The, the point about global speculation is that it happens to be adjacent to an extremely permissive land credit system. That there's no reason why you couldn't have a dynamic, speculative um, city-state like the city of London next to a, a, a nation that was able to house its people. Singapore houses its people and is a mini city of London, but it has a different land regime. So I, th you know, I think they are. These are obviously intimately connected, but they're not. You don't have to deal with the problem of global capitalism. To, but to, what to happens home, home in a, unless you'd have to have a, like a very strong regulatory because that's why you have whole, uh, whole boroughs of London where people don't even live any hardly you know the, the lights are out because yeah, it's pure speculation right. it's just being bought all that extra I would, capital I definitely, definitely want to read Laurie's book because he talks a lot about the ways in which you could dampen down that kind of absentee ownership and you could make um, the cost of owning property reflect its, the social costs if you like Who's next for the question? I know there's another Dan. Dan. Um, what do we do about it? So uh, we're in Margate, um, which is a town benefiting hugely at the moment from the problem in London, which is that uh, your graph is really interesting of private rental just surpassing private ownership in London right now. Well, that suddenly makes sense why so many of us, but that isn't us, have moved here and bought a house. Because we're still partly in that um, 
story that home ownership is accessible if what we do as freelance artists is to look after ourselves in our old age. We can't do that in London until we come here and live with poor people in London and rich people in the market, essentially. The, um, the artistic middle classes that, that we are. At the same time, there's a whole load of people here who are in deep poverty, renting the private sector, and our landlords creaming off a fortune from Clifton Bill. So we're in an area which is described as a problem by the council. It's not that it's a poor area, it's that the people who live in it are poor and the people who own it are rich and they live somewhere else. So as we're in this cycle where land prices go up because there's suddenly a whole huge arty, amazing thing going on, people want to come here and blah, 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 our presence secures our future in the traditional story. It increases land values because this building has gone up extraordinarily in value over the last five years because we're in it and making the place beautiful and exciting and successful. That's regeneration story, right? Then developers move in, turn into luxury apartments, and the artists go somewhere else. What do we do now? Because our council's not going to do anything. They're Tory. Kent County Council's Tory, and the leader is a developer. Um, I go over a meeting yesterday at Planet Council to talk about how their disposal policy might invade art studios for the long term to, to ensure that the same will survive. But what do we do as individuals to, can we play the market at its own game? Can we build community housing ourselves and, and benefit from the uplift in value that our creative studios are providing? What's the, mm. what's the answer by one at the front? <laughs> uh, well, that's the that's the million the million dollar question, I guess, isn't it? Um, I do think that I mean I do think that there is a there is a tendency I think where and I'm su and I'm supportive completely of um, the various sort of community like community approaches. What can communities do? Various different community models that have been successful elsewhere kind of tackling this. Part part of me the kind of sad truth is that I think that. Where you do see um, community, community, successful community schemes, whether whatever they are, community housing things or community land trusts or whatever, starting to do this, they often basically rely on uh, getting gifted land from the council or phil phil philanthropy or getting sold something cheap uh, or getting some kind of benefit somewhere. It's very, very difficult to actually do this to make a real impact, kind of unsupported in any way, uh, and that's why I think it's like it's just generally really, really, really challenging. I've, I've not really, uh, it's hard to come across, you know, lots of kind of clear examples of making real, real inroads with this without having some kind of uh, gift or, or support, um, and that's why I think that it is important, as much as we need to be looking into what we can do at a local level as well. Uh, I think getting that balance between doing things at the community-led level, but also at the same time trying as much as possible to get uh, the, the rules of the game, if you like, hacking away at them to say, well, how can we enable and support uh, the changes that need to happen? Because, yeah, ultimately, I say there's lots of interesting things that can happen, but when, when I kind of look at them, it's like, oh, well, you got, the, you got this land for a quid from the council, or they had a rich philanthropist say, oh, by the way, you can have this for free kind of thing. Um, and, that, and they kind of get the asset and then can work from that. But unless you actually can get the asset in the first place to actually do stuff with, uh, it's very, very difficult, I think. So, yeah, not the, not the most inspirational of answers, but, uh, but uh, I think, you know. Definitely going to have to work on the TED Talk. Um, yeah. Kate. Just very quickly, does anywhere else in the UK or any, I mean, I'm sure probably that was in other places in Europe, 
put any kind of cap system on, you know, the price that the property can go for based on the size of it, or how many bricks it uses, because surely you must get to a stage where a brick does not cost X amount, it would always cost around that price. Is there anywhere where a capping system has worked on, on rentals and on sales, you know, that, that basically keeps things at a level where people can, you know, potentially afford? Or maybe something where when people move out of the area, you know, percentage of the, the value of their property over and above what they pay for it, you know, somehow goes back into some kind of scheme to, I don't know, help people get on the ladder, whatever it is, or, or, or even if it's just renting, you know. But somehow we have to cut the strings with government, we have to cut the strings with those people that are basically making us do these things that we don't necessarily want to do. It just, you know, if there's so much kind of like corruption up there, then somehow we have to just chop that bit there and, you know, and do it together. Yeah, I mean, just, just briefly on that, I, mean, I think one thing to bear in mind, uh, which we always, I think, forget in this country, which is uh, this isn't the case everywhere, you know, what we've just talked about. Um, uh, it isn't a kind of a natural feature of kind of advanced capitalist economies. There are places, so like Germany is a place, obvious example, where house price to income ratios have actually fallen uh, in the past two, two decades, start to tick up a bit recently, but... Um, the idea that house prices are, are always going up, rents are always going up. And that's for a whole host of different reasons there. Uh, in Germany, they have a completely different uh, banking system, completely different planning system. The rental market is completely different. So the rent controls you talked about, is there a limit? So rent controls, forms of rent controls can be effective and they're used in, in Germany quite effectively uh, to do that. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, I think there are, we need to look at other examples of where this isn't necessarily the case, where we don't have this kind of rat race in, in, in the property market um, and, and learn from that as much as possible. But also, I think you, we can't pretend that we can just sort of pick something up from somewhere else and implant it here because it's so, as I said, in, intertwined with the politics, the history, the legal system, everything else that really define the, the land economy in this country. Given what we currently have at the moment, what do you think we're doing that's working, and what do you think we 
So, so despite, despite the, uh, the kind of pessimism at last answer, actually reasonably on the kind of bigger picture stuff about, you know, is it, can, can anything be done about it? I'm actually slightly more optimistic on that front because uh, I do think that kind of tipping point has been reached or we're approaching it, whereby um, it's got to a point where most people recognise something is fundamentally wrong. As I said, we've now got a situation where the amount of people in the in struggling, basically, in the extremely expensive private rental market is now uh, exploding. Basically, the amount of people who can't get a home, buy a home, that want to, is falling. People own a home is falling. I think there is a bit of a kind of a political constituency that is being increasingly energised and mobilised to come together. Not only so renters, but also concerned parents and things like that. Uh, and I think I'm taking some comfort since the book came out actually in the past 12 months uh, that po politically as well I think that we've seen across the party political spectrum signs that they're looking to take this a little bit more seriously. Um, the Tories for the first time basically in a long time have signalled that the answer isn't just throw more, you know, everyone can own their own home kind of thing. They've looked and we were speaking to Dan earlier and their manifesto kind of tucked away in the 2017 election they were looking at changing compulsory purchase laws, for example, to look at land value capture, which was interesting. Um, so I do think that we're seeing potentially, if we're smart about it and can mobilise a bit of a movement to really get something, get something to be done. On what should be done, um, I actually don't think the difficult bit is um, policy-wise, what, what ideally, in an ideal world, what should, what should happen. I think there are kind of a, a range of things that I've that, that touched on to do with um, the, the way that we the way that we build and supply houses, the tax system, financial regulation, a whole kind of suite of things to change. The difficult bit for me anyway is how do you do that in a way that A doesn't crash the doesn't crash the economy, doesn't crash house prices bank system, or B doesn't just create so many massive winners and losers overnight that just means that it's politically uh, you know unfeasible. Because like I said the, the real difficulty is that it's largely a zero sum game. Anything that you do will hit someone, that benefits someone will hit someone. And for many decades we've had basically people who own property, policies be skewed to benefit them at the expense of a growing minority of people who've basically been increasingly screwed over. And now to try and resurrect that in a way, it's, you're not real to do that without, lose, without some losers who are going to be very vocal. And so I think that it really needs to be, there's no kind of big bang solution that can we do tomorrow, somebody comes into government to fix this. I just don't think that's possible. I think there's a long-term, <coughs> serious sort of strategic think of how do we, how do we wean ourselves off this system, and what are the uh, changes we can make gradually to phase in and phase out some of the old features and move to a different kind of system. Um, and I think that that's just a, it's just a very difficult, long process, arduous process of making things. I don't think there is the big bang type solution that some people say there is, but I, I just don't think there is. We're going to take, that was a really great moment to stop, but we're going to take one very short, sharp question. quite a short one, actually, sure. anyway. It was just um, in terms of kind of the economists um, within um, Parliament. Do you feel there's a kind of lack of expertise within government? <laughs> well, sorry, that's maybe a bit obvious. <laughs> but seriously, like, you know, I guess, you know, you, know, you and your kind of colleagues look at it in, in a lot of depth and an analysis. Is this not happening in government? Like, surely economists are trying to work this through. Yeah, 
So do you mean do you mean within civil service or do you mean MPs? Yeah, yeah within civil service, really. And I guess does that then feed? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's maybe quite a naive question, right? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think on the, on the broader point, is there a lack of capacity in government? I think there absolutely is. And this comes into the point that, uh, that and this is both local and, and national, I think, I mean, the, I won't go into it. I mean, I just think the Treasury is just the root of most problems, basically, effectively. <laughs> so I won't go into that. But I do think that, particularly at a local government level, uh, where it's actually what's actually most relevant to, to this stuff in a lot of places, talked about uh, development and how we've kind of, uh, we've moved away from the kind of public sector leading the process of development and placemaking. We've let, completely abandoned that in favour of this kind of market-led developer system. Uh, and I think it's a real shame. I think part of the answer, and we talk about it a bit in the book, is m empowering and increasing the capacity and resources of local authorities and of planning in particular. Because planning has become something that's viewed as kind of a regulatory burden that is there, it's a kind of impediment, whereas actually it should be a, a creative hub where people can go, when there's a really long-term strategic view taken in a local area, what do we want this place to look like? What's the place, what's that kind of big picture development planning? Uh, and it's participatory and has different stakeholder input, uh, and it's not just a reactive thing of developers applying and, and playing this very sort of static role. And I think that's absolutely about capacity, public sector capacity, um, public sector resources, uh, and also making them, you know, attractive places to work, and there's a real creative flavour about it. I think that whole rethinking the role of the public sector, generally, but in particular around development, placemaking, all the rest of it, is like one of the most important things that we need to do. And we're just going in the complete opposite direction at the moment because the so budgets are just being cut dramatically. So, Laurie, we've been talking now quite formally for for over an hour. We have got there's wine to be drunk. There's also crucial books to be sold. Um, and so what I'd like to do now is to ask everyone to join, join me in thanking Laurie for a really fantastic introduction to the And um, look at these books. I mean, what, what a beautiful thing is a book. Um, I'm going to charge you the full RRP. But you get a, which is fifteen pounds. But you get a free beaker of wine, <laughs> which I think is marketing genius. Um, so it's fifteen pounds for a glass of wine, which you can pay in London because of these speculators, you know. Right. Do you know I don't? But I can take my. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's always. Um, 